All right, turn with me, if you will, this morning to the Gospel of Mark. And if we want to learn more about Jesus, there's no better place than the Gospels in our New Testament Bible. Today we're going to begin a study in this Gospel. Uh, I first uh, went through the Gospel of Mark 19 years ago in this church, and I'm sure you all remember that. Seeing how the only people who were there then uh, was my wife and Danny Schweitzer. <laughs> so I think we're safe in going back through this uh, shortest of the four lives of Christ we have in our Bible. Some of you weren't even born then. And uh, we're glad that you're here to share that with us uh, today as we go through the Gospel of Mark. Have you ever imagined living in the time of Christ's ministry? What would it have been like to see him, to hear him preach, to observe his healing of the sick and infirm, casting out demons and performing all kinds of miracles? What would you have thought of him, and how would you have responded to him? Well, obviously, none of us were living in those days, but today we have four reliable and God-inspired accounts of the, the life of the Lord Jesus in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. All of these works portray him as the Son of Man, the Son of God, and the Messiah of Israel, the Savior of mankind. They reveal him as the fulfillment of the promises uh, way back in the book of Genesis, which we just finished studying But we can go back to Genesis chapter 3 and see the seed of the gospel as a promised one uh, was going to come who would conquer Satan, who would crush his head. We also see the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant through whom all the families of the earth would eventually be blessed. So Jesus Christ is the one to whom the book of Genesis pointed to thousands of years before he came on the scene. Now this morning, we're going to discover some important background of Mark's gospel, but also take some time to learn about him as a person. And it's important to know where our gospels came from, because there are people today who doubt it, or who uh, may look down upon it. So we need to uh, understand why we have these works and and, uh, what we've uh, learned about them through the years. And we're going to find today that Mark became a faithful, profitable servant of Christ, even though he once turned back from ministry. And if there's one thing the Bible does teach us is that we often fail to be what God wants us to be, but that's not the end of our life. He is the God who forgives us and keeps putting us back on the right track. He helps us to move forward, even through times of failure, that we might continue to serve him. So let's ask God's blessing as we begin this morning. Our Heavenly Father, we're thankful again today for our gathering, and we're thankful that we gather around your word at this moment. We're thankful, Lord, today for the gospel stories of Jesus Christ that show us what kind of a person he was, why he came into the world, what he did to save humanity. And Lord, as we're refreshed about some of these things, we pray that we might draw closer to you And we pray, Lord, that if there's anyone in our midst who does not yet know you, that they will learn of you and come to you through this study of the Gospel of Mark. Bless us, we ask this morning in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.
All right, let's do a little bit of background here about the Gospel of Mark. How do we know who wrote this Gospel other than the title that's given to us, the Gospel according to Mark? Who was this person? He does not mention himself in the whole narrative. So how do we know that this is the person who authored this work of God? Well, we go back in time to the early church. It unanimously accepted his authorship by the middle of the second century. That's around 150 AD, uh, not, uh, 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 not very far away from the closing of the New Testament. And this is apparent since numerous of the church fathers of that day identified him as the author of the gospel and the protege of the apostle Peter. So he had a very close connection to one of the apostles of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, he was not a disciple. I think he was way too young for that when Jesus ministered. He was not an eyewitness of everything that he wrote, but he was writing uh, from the viewpoint of an eyewitness, the Apostle Peter and his experiences. One of the early church's fathers uh, was named uh, Papias, and we believe he may have been a disciple of the Apostle John, and he wrote as early as 120 AD these words. Mark was the interpreter of Peter and wrote accurately, but not in order, whatever he remembered about the things which are said and done by the Lord. So he's drawing from the experience of Peter, who was with the Lord for his three and a half year ministry. And many other historians and church fathers agree with that. Now, we come to the date of the gospel, that's not quite as much uh, of an agreement, especially in uh, recent years of scholarship as people continue to study these things. And even among conservative scholars, we don't all agree on exactly when Mark was written. Some of the early church fathers contend that Mark wrote his gospel after the death of Peter, which would place it sometime between 64 and 68 AD, before the fall of Jerusalem in 70 AD. Others believe Mark's account was begun before Peter's death and then published after he died. That would put it earlier in the 60s. And still others believe it could have been as early as 55 to 59 AD if it was the first gospel that was authored. And again, we're not exactly sure if Mark came first or Matthew came first. There's arguments for both, and we're not going to go into all those details today. But if Mark did author the first account of Christ's life, it would have been completed probably earlier in the 60s, maybe 62 or 63. If Matthew wrote first, well, that really wouldn't have to change the date of Mark at all. And either way, it does not affect the truth or the impact of what Mark wrote through the inspiration of God. Now, most importantly, how does Mark portray the Lord Jesus Christ? Now, in his divine wisdom, God chose four men to write the story of Christ's life and ministry that he wanted us to know for generations in the future. Each of these authors presents the Lord Jesus in a different way, although their accounts intertwine and cover some of the same material, they each seem to have a, a 
kind of a, a specific emphasis they're trying to get across to their audience. Matthew presents Christ as the Messiah, the King of the Jews. He has the most quotations from the Old Testament, and his purpose was to reach the Jewish people and convince them of Christ's identity as their Messiah. Now, Luke, he emphasizes more the humanity of Jesus, the Son of Man, who came and compassionately identified himself with the people that he came to save. John has an emphasis on the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ, the divine Son of God, setting out to show that Jesus was not merely a man, he was God in flesh. He was the God-man who came to save us. Now, Mark seems to focus more on the service of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the servant of the Lord, going from place to place rapidly, doing different things, uh, uh, showing himself to be uh, the Son of God. And uh, he moves, uh, the scenes move quickly, uh, preaching, healing, performing miracles, serving uh, those he came to save. And so he's very active in the fulfillment of his mission, and Mark brings us into that action by the style of his writing. And this is depicted, as you read through the Gospel of Mark, you'll note many, many times, actually 40 times, this word immediately or straightway, carrying us from this place to this place to this place, as he is the minister, the servant of God who came to save us. And he does so uh, far more than all the other Gospels put together using that terminology. Now, to whom did Mark address his Gospel? Who did he want to reach? Well, we know that Mark was in Rome with Peter, according to Peter's first epistle. We believe he wrote his Gospel from this capital city of the whole world to a Gentile population. He uses a lot of Latinized terms, which indicates Roman culture. Uh, Even his name Mark is the Latin surname to his Jewish name John. Now, other indications in the gospel indicate this as well. For instance, he records no genealogies. That's not something that would have really appealed to a Gentile audience. He only quotes the Old Testament two times, and he alludes to it much less than the other gospel writers. He also explains Jewish terms and concepts that may not have been familiar to a Gentile reader, and he refers much less to Jewish life, religious sects, and and the concept of the kingdom of God that we find especially in Matthew and Luke. So his writing was aimed at a non-Jewish audience, such as ours, and of course we're two millennia removed away from that audience, but we are blessed with all four Gospels to give us our understanding of the Lord Jesus Christ today. So we can appreciate the heart of Mark wanting to reach a people with an idolatrous pagan background uh, with the truth about Christ, and unfortunately the world's moving more in that direction today idolatry, and paganism. Now, what are Mark's major themes? Well, we're just going to focus on two, and that is that he is showing us who Jesus is 
and what it means to follow him as a disciple. He identifies Jesus in the very first verse, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So he believes he's more than just a man. He is the Son of God, a man or God in the flesh. And Jesus seldom alluded to himself with that title, but his gospel authors did. Jesus wanted people to come to him uh, and make their own conclusions as they observed his life, his miracles, and his teaching. Now, the theme of Christ's preaching is also in chapter 1, if you look at verses 14 and 15. Now, after John was put in prison, Jesus came to Galilee preaching the gospel, the good news of the kingdom of God, and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So he wants you to believe that he is the Savior, he is the author of the good news, and to repent of your sin and turn to him. And as Jesus presents himself as the the anointed one of God who will save his people from their sin, he points out that deed. Your responsibility is to believe and repent of your sins. So the gospel is the good news of Jesus Christ coming to deliver us from the penalty and the power of sin. And then we also read earlier the theme of his life in chapter 10, which is really an example to disciples as he came to serve the Lord. And we find that in chapter 10 and verse 45. Again, a good verse for memory. But in verse 45, Jesus says, For even the Son of Man, referring to himself, did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom or a payment price for many. All right, so we're learning about who Jesus is, why he came, and what our responsibility then is to him. We're all challenged to consider who he is and why he came, and if he claimed to be who he was, then it's reasonable for us to become his disciple. Otherwise, you must reject his claims And the other two options are he was either a liar or he was a lunatic. Okay, now let's turn our thoughts to Mark himself, the author of the gospel, and consider what the New Testament reveals about him. He's mentioned eight places in the New Testament from which we can draw some points concerning his life and his character. And I want you young people to listen up here. Because we'll see that Mark was a proven servant of Christ. He was a young man, first of all, with great opportunities. I want you to turn to, the, uh, to Acts chapter 12 this morning, uh, where we are kind of introduced to his family very briefly. But in Acts chapter 12, uh, we're in Jerusalem. In this chapter, James has been... Uh, beheaded by Herod, Peter has been thrown in prison, and now we're seeing the end result of an angel coming and uh, causing Peter to escape. 
And when he is taken out of the prison and put on a street in Rome, he heads for the house where John Mark was living. So in verse 12, so when he had considered this, he came to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose surname was Mark, where many were gathered together praying. So here's Mark. Uh, his mother uh, was wealthy enough to have a, a home where several believers could meet. They're praying for the deliverance of Peter, and you know the irony of the story. As he's knocking on the door to come in, uh, uh, a little maid says it's Peter at the door and says, oh, you're crazy, it must be a ghost. The Lord answered their prayer, but, but they think it's a ghost that's standing at the door. But anyways, we're at the home of Mark. People are praying there, and it's apparent then that he was brought up in a Christ-believing home. Now, uh, that would mean that the background of a Jewish person uh, they would have the Old Testament understanding of the coming of a Messiah. They would have heard enough about the Lord Jesus to believe he was the Messiah and come to him in faith. And now perhaps even a church was meeting in their home as this group of people are praying for Peter's release. Now, Mark uh, is probably in his youth, uh, maybe like a teenager at this time, and when Jesus would come to Jerusalem, it's quite possible he could have heard his teaching. He might have witnessed a miracle done there. Um, we're not exactly sure of all that. And if you turn to Mark's gospel, chapter 14, we have a, a possible allusion to Mark writing about himself anonymously as sometimes the... Uh, the New Testament authors would do. For instance, you remember that uh, John uh, mentioned a person, a disciple who rested his head on the breast of Jesus, but he doesn't name him. So we assume that John was talking about himself. Well, there's an incident here at the betrayal of the Lord Jesus Christ in Matthew, uh, excuse me, Mark 14 and verse 51. And this just kind of is it's kind of in there. Uh, out of the blue, because in verse 50, the disciples forsook Jesus and fled, and now here's somebody else. A certain young man, verse 51, followed him, having a linen cloth thrown around his naked body, probably his pajamas. And the young man laid hold, uh, laid hold of him, the young men, in other words, those uh, some of those who had arrested Jesus, and he left the linen cloth and fled from them naked. Now, this person's not mentioned, Perhaps it was Mark displaying what happened to him. Maybe he was on the edge of the crowd seeing what was happening, and they approached him and grabbed his, his uh, pajamas, and he just fled to get out of there like the other disciples did. So we think that may have been uh, Mark, and of course being a, uh, a young man at the time. Now, in, in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 13, it's suggested there that he was likely a convert of Peter. Now, Peter calls Mark in that passage, my son, which may mean my son in the faith. Paul used that same term for Timothy. So these were young men that they had led to Christ, that they are um, mentoring and bringing up in the ministry. And that's the relationship these two folks had with each other. And we quoted, quoted earlier, Papias, 
uh, said that Mark was believed to be the interpreter of Peter, writing his gospel from Peter's remembrances of Christ's life and ministry. Now, let's turn back to Acts chapter 13. And here we see that even as a young man, now we're, we're going down the road uh, several years to the first missionary journey of Paul and Barnabas. So we find this in Acts chapter 13. <clears throat> now, according to Colossians 4.10, Mark was also related to another famous person, uh, a friend of Paul. His name was Barnabas. Okay, And he was either the nephew of Barnabas or the cousin of Barnabas. We're not exactly sure which the relationship was. But this may be why he was with these men uh, at the time, the beginning of this journey. Uh, In chapter 13, now in the church that was at Antioch, there were certain prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manian, who had been brought up with Herod, the Tetrarch, and Saul. As they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Spirit said, Now separate to me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. And then having fasted and prayed, they laid hands on them and sent them away. So this is the first missionary journey, leaving from the uh, city of Antioch and the church there. And Paul and Barnabas are leading that uh, first uh, endeavor. So they're sent out by the Holy Spirit. uh, And uh, uh, John Mark is, is with them at this time. And I can't find where he's mentioned here. Oh, yes, it is. Uh, sorry. Uh, chapter 13, verse 5. All right, it, tell, it tells us where they have sailed. And the last phrase there says, they also had John as their assistant. So this is John Mark, the author of, of the gospel. Uh, he's with them. Now, again, imagine uh, a very young man, probably not 30 years old yet, going out on the first missionary journey to places he had never been with these two famous men, uh, the Apostle Paul and Barnabas the Encourager. Would you have been maybe a little bit intimidated by that? Would you have uh, felt like, wow, I'm in some really famous company here and been a bit nervous about the whole situation or felt unworthy? But what an opportunity for a young man to serve God on a foreign mission trip to people that had never heard the gospel before. Now, Mark is called here their minister or their assistant. And this is an unusual word because literally it can be translated an under rower. And that is kind of a lowly service to be in one of these old uh, ships that were moved by rowers, and you're on the very bottom row. If you're in a battle and your ship gets hit, you're probably the first one to go. 
Uh, so they put the slaves down there. They put the less worthy down there. And, and so we're, we're looking at a position of uh, humility, a position of lowly service, of being willing to do whatever God called you to do, whatever these men wanted you to do, you know, make their bed, cook their meals, whatever it might be, but also obtaining valuable firsthand training in the gospel ministry. So Mark was a humble servant, even in his youth, in this opportunity he had. And as he presents Jesus as the servant of the Lord, well, uh, Mark's gospel focusing on that, he is willing to follow the, the example that Christ laid for him. Now, this morning we have numerous young people here with us uh, who have had similar experience to Mark. Many of you have grown up in a Christian home. You've been exposed to the gospel from the earliest ages. You've gone to church since you can remember. And, uh, and currently you are in a church that is teaching and preaching the same things that, that Paul and Barnabas and Mark taught way back when, and you're here every Sunday. So the question for you is, have you put your faith in Christ like Mark did? Do you believe the truth about who Jesus is and why he came into the world? And if you have, you have a bright future in front of you. You have many doors of opportunity that God will open to you. How many of those doors will you go through? Have you begun to think about how uh, you, you may serve the Lord Jesus with your life? It goes far beyond making a profession of faith, but it's living for him. So are you seeking his will for your life as Mark sought uh, God's will for his life? Now, with that in mind, we see here a young man who also experienced an embarrassing failure. In the same chapter, we come down... Uh, to verse 13. Now, Mark had a great opportunity to serve. He went out with two men of God, but something happened that changed everything. And as the story moves forward, the missionary party uh, uh, goes to the island of Cyprus, where the governor of that island, Sergius Paulus, was saved. They moved from that place, and now they head up to the mainland of what is now southern uh, uh, Turkey to a city called Perga. But when they arrived there, for some reason, Mark left the field. Verse 13. Now, when Paul and his party set sail from Paphos, they came to Perga in, in Pamphylia, and John departing from them, returned to Jerusalem. Now, we don't know why he did that. But we do know from another passage of Scripture, Paul was pretty upset about it. Paul must not have thought it was a good reason, or at least good enough, to leave the field of ministry. So if you turn over to Acts chapter 15, we see how this all plays out a couple of years later, down the road, after this journey is over, and maybe another year, uh, they decide they want to go back and visit these churches. So if you look at Mark, uh, excuse me, Acts 15, verse 36. Then after some days, 
Paul said to Barnabas, Let us now go back and visit our brethren in every city where we have preached the word of the Lord and see how they're doing. So they want to go back and they want to uh, see the churches, encourage them in the faith, and see how things are proceeding. Now, verse 37, Barnabas was determined to take with them John called Mark, but Paul insisted that they should not take with them the one who had departed from them in Paphilia and had not gone with them to the work. So Paul, <coughs> excuse me, does not want to give him a second chance. Barnabas does. <clears throat> and we have this problem developing because Mark left the ministry uh, back there in Perga. And it tells us here the contention became so sharp that they parted from each other. So Barnabas took Mark, he went to Cyprus, Paul took Joseph, uh, Silas, and they went uh, in a different direction, being commended by the brethren to the grace of God. So here's a situation that developed because, for whatever reason, Mark was unfaithful. He left that, uh, that area of ministry, went back on that opportunity, and a division came between two chief leaders in the church that ended up them going different directions. Well, God in his sovereignty made two groups out of it instead of one, but you still see the seriousness of what happened to Mark and his lapse, perhaps of faith. It doesn't really matter who was right or wrong in the situation, because I'm sure that both Barnabas and Paul had good reasons or arguments for what they uh, wanted to do. But the issue was the unfaithfulness of Mark to that first mission, and whatever reason he quit, he went back home, it caused a major division between these two leaders. Now, unfaithfulness can be discouraging, and it can be the, the cause of a loss of opportunity to serve. It almost was for Mark. Fortunately, Barnabas, whose name means encourager, was not as stringent as Paul, and Mark uh, was able to go with him, and it seems over time he proved his faithfulness. Now, we've got to remember that just like saints of old, in the Old Testament, there were saints in the New Testament who had lapses of faithfulness, like Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and so many others in the Word of God. But God can forgive those situations. He can get us back where we belong, and he can continue to use us. We should be so thankful for that because all of us know what it means to sin or to lapse in faith or to get some kind of a problem, and we have to come to the Lord and get it straightened out. So let's see the rest of the story because obviously uh, it couldn't have ended there because Mark was chosen to, to write one of the gospel stories. So how did Mark become then trustworthy to do that task? Well, let's take a look here at what happens. Now, uh, uh, this has been a couple of years since he left uh, uh, the first journey and now is going on with, with Barnabas on the second one. So we at least know that in that period of time, Mark did not lose a heart of service. He didn't let that get him down and just kind of quit everything. He still wanted to go out with the, with the uh, second journey. Uh, so that's a good sign. Uh, and 
you know, he had a desire to go out with them, and there, there never would have been a point of contention if he didn't have that desire. So let's see how Mark proved himself, even to Paul, over the coming years. Now, in Colossians chapter 4, um, in the last uh, few verses there, the authors of the epistles usually send some type of a greeting. And in Colossians chapter 4, uh, Paul does this, and he actually mentions Mark there. Uh, Colossians chapter 4 and verse 10, uh, he sends out greetings. If I can find it in my Bible here. <clears throat> Excuse me. Colossians 4, 10 uh, Paul writes, Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you. So he is with him in prison. With Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, who also must have been in Rome, about whom you received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. So by this time, the situation has been mended. He's with Paul in Rome. He may be going to Colossae, and he's instructing them to welcome him when he comes. So the relationship has gotten better. Um, in his letter to Philemon, Paul mentions Mark as one of his fellow laborers. And then in 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 11, uh, this also is pretty important because Paul is writing from Rome again, but now he does not expect to be released, and uh, he's really probably waiting for his execution at some point not in the too distant future. But in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 11, he writes uh, to his son of the faith, Timothy, only Luke is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is useful to me for ministry. So the last word of the Apostle Paul we have shows that he had put his faith and trust in Mark, and Mark had become useful, a proven servant in ministry, and he wants him to come and be with Paul in these last days or months of his life. Now, tradition tells us that Mark eventually became bishop or pastor of the church in Alexandria. Uh, while we can't always validate tradition, we do know that Mark was highly regarded by the Apostle Peter, the Apostle Paul, and, Mar and Barnabas, the encourager. And they observed how he grew and developed over time, not letting past failure ruin his future service. So he was eventually inspired of God to capture a life of Christ that we can study and we can appreciate today. So as we said, uh, spend time in this gospel, there are three things you should pay attention to. And incidentally, take some time to read through the gospel of Mark. It won't take you long, maybe a chapter a week or so to keep up with what we're preaching. But this, these are the three things I want you to pay attention to. First of all, how is Jesus Christ presented in this gospel? Mark states right off the bat, as we read earlier, that he believed Jesus to be the Son of God, and, and uh, how he presents him throughout that gospel should prove that he is the Son of God. 
And as Jesus moves from place to place and serves the Lord, Mark shows him not just to be the servant of God, but also the son of man, the son of God, who came to deliver us from the power of sin. So he's our savior. Secondly, what does Mark convey about discipleship, about those who choose to follow Christ? We all know the disciples were far from perfect. They were flawed men, just like we are. But Christ was able to change them and conform them to his image. And you and I can identify with their foibles, their failures, yet be encouraged to continue to be a follower of Christ. And finally, what will you do with the evidence that Mark presents? Will you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ as your personal Savior? Will you become his disciple? Or will you reject him? and face the eternal consequences of death and hell. That's as serious as it is. Our Heavenly Father, we pray today, as we look into this life of Christ written by Mark, that you would help us, Lord, to be encouraged once again about who the Lord Jesus Christ is. We're thankful, Lord, today that the majority of us have received him as Savior And hopefully, Lord, we are his disciple, we are following him and trying to serve him in some way. So encourage us uh, in these ways to be a disciple who is a servant like the Lord Jesus and like uh, Mark uh, through the rest of our lives. We ask in Jesus' name and for his sake, amen.